Proverbs chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me once again in your Bibles as we continue our study through the book of Proverbs together, kind of working our way as we've been talking about through this workshop of, of wisdom. Proverbs 19 verse 1 begins by telling us, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Well, it seems in this proverb here that Solomon is trying to convey the idea that it is much wiser, if need be, to have less financially or perhaps even to give up a degree of money in some sense, but instead to choose to do what is righteous and that which is honest instead. And this is the idea here of one's integrity, the idea of integrity or integral or integer, the idea is wholeness. The idea is there's not something lacking. So uh, when we speak of integrity, we're talking about uh, that character attribute whereby we are who we are all the time. We're not willing to make concessions. We're not willing to make compromises. Doesn't matter if someone's looking or not looking, that we hold to convictions. And so he says here, sometimes the decision comes where we have to choose between integrity and wealth, or integrity, or additional money, or excess finances. And he says, sometimes the wise person understands it is much wiser to have less financially, even to take a pathway that may lead to poverty, if that means choosing to do what is righteous and honest instead. And if you have not found that test in your life yet, I tell you, you will. Uh, that occasion will come, whether it's in your business uh, decisions, whether it's in situations that arise in the workplace, you know, maybe asked to be dishonest or asked to do something to compromise or kind of prone, and, and you have to kind of weigh out the options. And then there's that struggle of if I take that path, I, I might not get this business contract, or if I choose to do that and just be honest, it may mean loss in some way or greater. And, and you have to weigh that out sometimes. Uh, you may have to weigh that out in your personal life, maybe in regards to how you're handling your affairs or your finances or your taxes. And, and God says the wise person understands God's got plenty of money. God can always give you and I money. The Bible tells us that he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter eight, that is God who is the one who gives us the power to create or to generate wealth. And so ultimately we look to the Lord for our provision and is never wise. And in fact, it is worse to choose a path of increased wealth if that means we're going to have to compromise our integrity. Never wise to do that. And he says, better to be poor and yet still walk in integrity than to be one who, notice, is perverse in his lips, he says here, and is a fool. The idea is then to have taken some crooked path, a perverse path, to get maybe some money as the result of that, but to need to have to behave foolishly in some way, whether it's wrongdoing for obtaining money or maybe ending up being foolish to trade off and sometimes to get ahead in some way. He says much better to just be that one walking in integrity and let God take care of the rest. Much more value to have integrity than value of having a few more dollars in your hand or in your bank account, God says. Verse 2 tells us, also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sins who hastens with 
his feet. So he says there the beginning of our proverb, something that's not good, he says, is for a soul to be without knowledge. That is, uh, you know, it's, it's unwise to not acquire knowledge on a matter if we're able to. Uh, again, we talk about wanting to make well-informed decisions, and that applies to every area of life, certainly to have knowledge about God, knowledge of God's will, but I just think in just everyday operating in matters. I mean, there are plenty of areas in my life that I lack knowledge on, I lack understanding about, so when those situations come to pass, it is good and wise in those circumstances to do what I can to acquire knowledge, whether that's talking to others, maybe who have knowledge or understanding of those things, or to do a little due diligence and research to better understand things so that as I process that situation or have to make decisions, knowledge, he's mentioned many a times beyond just wisdom, knowledge is the acquisition of facts, but having that knowledge and understanding allows us to make much better decisions and to make good decisions. That's why he says it's not a good thing for a soul to be without knowledge. Do what you can. It's wise to gain knowledge on a matter, and to not gain knowledge on the matter is not only not wise, the idea here, it's, it's kind of somewhat risky. Uh, it ends up putting us in a place where we could make a foolish decision, and it leads to errors, and one of the ways he seems to imply that happens, notice he says the second half of the proverb he sins, errs, does wrongdoing, who hastens with his feet. So notice we get here a very strong caution against acting in haste, behaving in a hasty matter, hastening to make a quick decision maybe before we acquire some knowledge, before we get some research, before we understand a matter a little bit more clearly. Again, we, we saw some Proverbs about that last time. He who, remember, he said, he who answers a matter before he hears it out, gets all the facts, gets the full story, gets, he says, ends up being a folly and a shame when we don't get all the right information before we maybe execute a decision or respond in a matter or begin to you know react towards someone or some situation. And so again, this is the idea here that many a times we are prone to make greater mistakes when we hasten to decisions or we act quickly. We often say haste makes waste, right? And so whenever we're making impulsive decisions, quick, hasty decisions, usually that is never a good thing. And so the Bible gives us these strong cautions about being quick to do something without thought or being quick to make a determination or a decision without adequate preparation. And we just entered into the situation hastily. There's a much higher probability to not only make mistakes, but he even says to actually end up sinning, to end up doing what's wrong. Maybe we just kind of launch into something, we make a hasty decision, we, we hasten to handle a matter because of impatience or whatever it may be, and we just kind of, we hasten through it because we're just trying to just kind of deal with this and move on. And we can do that, and sometimes we end up making not only just mistakes, but he says we can even end up sinning in those situations. Uh, and all of us, I think, to some degree could certainly probably, if we were honest, pinpoint a time or two or a few in our life where we realize maybe if we would have slowed down a little bit and not made such a hasty decision, we probably would have maybe handled a matter a little better. Maybe we would have avoided an error. Maybe we wouldn't have hastened and entered into sin. Look, from time to time, we're going to struggle with the temptation to enter into sin. The last thing I want to do is go running into sin. <laughs> you know, I don't want to even step into sin or fall into sin, but God help us when we're running into it. 
when we're just kind of hastening too quickly, and as the result of that, we find ourselves going that way. Again, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 28 that, that you know, he who believes does not act with haste. And so again, sometimes our hasty decisions are an indication that we're not trusting the Lord, that we're not waiting on the Lord. The Bible tells us on occasion things like, be still and know that I'm God. And so sometimes we need to learn how to just trust the Lord. He's our foundation. We don't have to rush. You know, so many times, more often than not, we get into way more trouble, do we not, when we make quick, hasty, impulsive decisions as compared to when we take our time, slow down a little bit, maybe wait, and even be willing when that high-pressure feeling is on us, whether we're just feeling it ourselves or whether someone else is kind of verbally pressing those ideas upon us, that we have enough courage to trust the Lord to say, you know, I'm not going to make a hasty decision here. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to trust the Lord. But if you don't make the decision now, this deal's going to pass. You know, I mean, it's the greatest shopping gimmick, uh, shopping gimmick in history. You know, well, this great deal, well, there's, there's been great deals. Still, another great deal will come. And if God wants you to have something, if it's a financial decision, be patient. You know, hastening sometimes has gotten many into trouble in lots of different ways. So just a, a good principle here to caution us, get knowledge, take the time, research, and be careful that you don't hasten with your feet, go rushing into something, and end up erring or even worse, sinning in some way. Verse 3, he then says, and the foolishness of a man twists his way, that is, kind of leads him down his own crooked path, and his heart, he says, frets against the Lord. Now, a very interesting principle to something that a lot of times does play out among humanity. In fact, technically, this proverb is a very fitting description of exactly the first sin of mankind and what Adam ultimately did. Adam chose to disobey God. He chose to, in a sense, kind of distort, and in his foolish decision, he twisted his way, he partook of the forbidden fruit in a way that he should not have, he listened to his wife, he engaged in the situation, and then you remember what happened as soon as God questioned him about what he did, what did he do? He became the master blame shifter. Adam, what did you do? Well, Lord, it was the woman, and then he went this way, that you gave me. In other words, God Everything was going really great in paradise here. I had a garden to work. You and I were in great fellowship. And then you had this bright idea. It's not good for man to be alone. And you brought this woman into my life and maybe fall in love with her. And now, Lord, and, and it's the woman that you gave me that told me, why don't you? And, and Adam just, instead of taking responsibility, he, in a sense, shifted the blame first to Eve, and then ultimately shifted the blame all the way to God. And, and this is kind of the concept of the verse here where he says, look what he says, verse 3, the foolishness of a man, that is, we make our own foolish decisions at times as people, and the foolish decision-making of a person is what causes them to twist their own way, to, to get off course, the idea is, to deviate from doing what's right, and then when you deviate off the path or you take a wrong turn and go off the roadway, you crash, you suffer problems, consequences come. So he says, it's the foolishness of man that twists his way, and then problems come, heartache and pain and difficulty and hardship. But then notice, but then his heart, which was what guided him to take the wrong way, then his heart turns around 
and frets against the Lord. The idea is the person, their foolish decision takes a wrong path, enters into their own problems, and then their heart becomes angry against the Lord. And then they begin to get upset with God and upset and, and begin to blame God. I, why would God make my life so hard? Why this isn't, I can't believe God would do this to me. I can't believe God. Wait a minute. God didn't make you make those decisions. God didn't tell you to make those choices. You're basically trying to say it's okay for you to have free will from God. You want to be in charge. You want to have freedom to make your own choices. God allows you that. And then you make foolish decisions and bad choices. And, and you create your own problems and, and all these hardships. And then you want to turn around and blame God for giving you a hard life. No, you, you created your own hard life. And, and this is just a very common struggle. And again, just a, a degree of human foolishness that a man's own foolishness twists his way, but then his heart turns around and frets and anger and angst against the Lord, kind of blaming God for one's own hardships and one's own problems. Never a good thing. Uh, that's just a path towards further foolishness rather than taking personal accountability and realizing, no, it was my own foolish choice that got me into this situation, and I need to take responsibility for that. And I need to own it and not be mad at God for it or blame God because I'm going through a hard time. Instead, I need to humble myself before God and be repentant and say, God, I was foolish there, and forgive me and, and, and help me fix this situation and help me turn the thing around, and God, I don't blame you. I brought this upon myself, and that's a, a degree of wisdom rather than the opposite, which is a very common human tendency, as old as the Garden of Eden, blame-shifting, especially when it's toward God. Verse 4, he says, wealth makes many friends. Now, we've seen Proverbs like this before. Back in chapter 14, he who has wealth has a lot of friends. He comes back to this kind of repetitious idea once again. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor, in contrast, is separated from, notice, singular, his friend. So to have excess wealth, to be, in a sense, someone who has a little bit more excess financial uh, you know, resources, he says, that will do one thing. It will certainly recruit lots of people to be interested to be your friends, uh, people will want to be more friendly towards you because obviously they have a self-seeking motive. But he says the poor person, in contrast, they find themselves being at times separated or abandoned even by their one friend. Uh, that is the one friend that sees them go into hardship. And, and it seems that what the Proverbs trying to convey here is this very sad, and it is sad, but true reality that people are oftentimes interested as well as also disinterested in relationship with other people for selfish motivations. And so at times, people for selfish motivation are interested in being friends with someone. That's what he says there. You got a lot of wealth, you're going to find that makes you a lot of friends. Fair weather friends, and, and maybe not real friends, <laughs> sincere friends, but what it is, it's their selfish motivation of what they can get out of you. They see the excess wealth. They see you as, in a sense, an opportunity. Hey, if I become friendly with that person, I, you know, there are benefits that may come my way by making friends with them. And, and this is just a very sad but true reality that people at times, when they see they can get something financially out of a relationship, they may be much more drawn to pursue that individual, again, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's in a romantic relationship, right? We all understand where the term like gold digger came from, right? <laughs> this is the idea here. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, God may not say it in the same way, but that's what God's saying is that human beings can be incredibly selfish in who they're interested in having relationships with 
as well as very selfish, self-seeking in who they're disinterested in having relationships with. He says the poor person doesn't find a whole lot of people wanting to be their friends. In fact, they at times, sadly, when they fall into maybe hardship or maybe financial hardship, they find that people that were once connected to them, maybe even their one friend, pulls away from them. Because, oh man, he fell into financial hardship. I don't know if I want to hang out with him. He might ask me for help with his rent or something. So people kind of pull back. And hey, he's going through a hard time. I better steer clear because I don't want to get drawn into that. And so whether it's being drawn to someone or kind of just abandoning someone, very sad that oftentimes we're looking to, in a sense, relationally with people, get what we can out of a relationship, which is very sad, rather than uh, give what we can to a relationship. And God says that's a, a sad but true reality among humanity. Verse five, he says, and a false witness will not go unpunished. So one who perjures themselves in court or someone who gives testimony or just gives witness to what happened in a given situation. If they're giving false witness, they're lying. They're, they're not really sharing the truth of what really transpired. He says a false witness will not go unpunished. It may look like people get away with it for the time. It may seem like that liars get ahead or that people can, you know, kind of, you know, manipulate the truth. He says, but a false witness, ultimately, you know, in time, he says, they will not go unpunished. They will reap the consequence for that doing such. And he who speaks lies will not escape. That is, they won't escape and get away with this. Those who choose to be dishonest, the Bible says, in the facts of a matter, will in due time suffer for not being truthful. You liars never get ahead. Ultimately, they're not going to escape answering for what they did and choosing to lie, he says, in that given situation. Never wise to do such. Verse 6, many entreat the favor of nobility, that is those who are high-ranking positions, you know, those who were uh, you know, perhaps rulers, wealthy people in the society of the ancient culture, the nobility. And every man, again, he says, is a friend to one who gives gifts. Isn't that interesting? All the brothers of the poor, however, hate him. And how much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words. Hey, come back here. Why, why, why are you guys not hanging out with me anymore? Yet they abandon him. So verses six and seven kind of Again, kind of go back to reiterating the same general concept that you see there in verse 4, conveying this sad but wrong reality in human relationships that people are sadly many a times self-serving in who they determine uh, to spend time with and really in how they determine the value of a person that they interact with. And this is the idea of verses 6 and 7 that people are inclined to pursue those who they think they can get some benefit out of. And so that's how they value people, right? I mean, think about it. We as human beings, we've developed this mindset where sometimes we'll talk about a person and say, that guy is worth whatever, you know, $3.4 million. And we determine someone's worth by their assets or their, you know, their, their financial... That guy is worth, well, he may be worth that financially, but from a moral and character perspective, he may be worth less than a Happy Meal. But we determine people's worth based upon what? Wealth. That's what we do. And it just almost shows our mentality of how we value and assess people. Is that how God assesses people? 
Does God assess the value and the worth of people depending upon their financial position or their, their lack thereof, or their social status or the color of their skin or their ethnic background? Or, by none of those things, right? God treats people with complete equality. There's no partiality or favoritism. But yet as human beings, he says, sadly, sometimes we value people we interact with and we're inclined to pursue those we can get some benefit out of. That's why he says people entreat the favor of nobility and everybody wants to be a friend, he says, verse six, to somebody who gives gifts. But in contrast, he says, you find those who are poor and who are struggling and in hard times, uh, and many times they find that people not only want to spend time, don't want to spend time with them, but people are even prone to pull away from them or to just discard them. I mean, what, they're just, you know, they're a, a problem, they're a difficulty, and people just kind of abandon them because they don't see anything that they can get a value out of them, which is, a, again, a sad testament of how we value people in very wrong standards. Verse 8, he says, He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. So again, this is much, uh, in a sense, described all through Proverbs. Remember, the first couple chapters were all about the value of wisdom, and he comes back with this idea, someone who seeks to get wisdom shows they care about their own soul. The idea is if you, you, you seek after wisdom, you, you care about the condition of your own soul, because if you have more wisdom in your life, you're going to live a much more healthy life, and your soul, the condition of your life, is going to be much better. He also says, he who keeps understanding will find good. So it's not just important to obtain wisdom, but the Bible says you got to hang on to it. You know, don't, don't, don't obtain wisdom, but then not hang on to it and act upon it. Remember, technically, that was Solomon's mistake. I mean, Solomon gained a lot of wisdom. I mean, God gave him a ton of wisdom. I mean, he learned everything about different things of life, you know, botany and biology and zoology. I mean, he just... He pursued so many things on a scholarly level, and yet Solomon made some of the most foolish decisions anyone could ever make. He gained a lot of wisdom, but he didn't keep it. He didn't hang on to it. The idea is he didn't exercise it. And so it's not enough just to have a bunch of ideas and facts in our head. We, gotta, we have to hang on to those principles of wisdom because he says that's going to determine whether or not we end up leading a really bad life or we find a good life for ourselves. He says, if you, if you keep wisdom, you keep having an understanding heart, you're going to find and end up, you're going to enjoy a good life rather than a bad and a difficult life. Now, verse 9, very repetitious to verse, four, or to verse 5 above, a false witness will not go unpunished. Exact reiteration of the first part of verse 5. Again, whenever God's being repetitious, he's clearly trying to drive a point home. So just in case we thought liars can get away with it, God just wanted to remind us one more time of the danger of it. A false witness will not go unpunished. God says, in case you missed it in verse 5, I'll say it again. And then he adds just a little bit differently, he who speaks lies, same phrase, this time he says, shall perish. So up above he said, you won't escape. You won't get away with it. Now God says, you're actually risking perishing. And perish is a strong term, which means to bring about self-ruin. So again, very, very dangerous and risky to go down a path of dishonesty in any way. Verse 10, he says, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. So uh, when someone is living like a fool, the idea is there, verse 10, when they're living like a fool, they don't properly appreciate 
things of value, nicer things. And that's the idea that you know, luxury is not fitting for a fool because to have something that's important or valuable, if they're foolish, they have no appreciation of it. They're not going to be a good steward in any way. And therefore, they're going to have poor stewardship and become wasteful and neglectful. The idea is because they're foolish, they won't handle things properly. So they shouldn't be entrusted with something if they don't know how to manage it with proper stewardship. And he says that also applies, notice, not just in material things, but it also applies in regards to responsibilities and roles. Because he says, much less for a servant to be able to rule over princes. And so here he speaks of being able to handle a role or a responsibility. So he says, if someone is not ready to lead, they're not ready to oversee, they've been operating as a servant, which the servant operates under a master, right? So the idea here, in the New Testament, it speaks of servants and masters. The idea is employer, employee, supervisor, worker. And he says here, if someone has been operating as a servant and they're not ready to lead, they're not ready to oversee, and they should still for a time be led by another, he says, it is a dangerous thing to prematurely promote the servant and make them a ruler over others who are more experienced than them if they're not ready to handle that role yet. That's going to cause a problem. Premature promotion with someone who's not ready to rule and lead uh, those who are more experienced, that's going to backfire on many, many levels. He says it's not good for a servant to rule over princes. The idea is if they're not prepared and ready for that responsibility. Verse 11, he says, And the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Great, great source of wisdom for relational interactions with people, right? Jesus said that it is impossible for offenses not to come. I mean, you are still a very naive, sadly, immature Christian if you're thinking somehow that you can be even among God's family, and because you're among God's family, nobody's going to ever step on your toes. There's never going to be a misunderstanding. There's never going to be offense or hurt or, I mean, just... People are human, and the body of Christ, the church family, don't come, I'm so thankful that God established the body of Christ. It is the best dysfunctional family on the earth. It really is. But everybody, to some degree, is broken and still dysfunctional. The only difference as Christians is that we understand concepts like love and forgiveness and reconciliation and bearing with one another and learning how to resolve conflict biblically and not let roots of bitterness sink in and and walking in the spirit over our emotions and letting our minds run down paths that aren't good and backbiting. Because we understand the principles that God's given to us and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live differently. And here God gives to us really great wisdom of how to navigate when things transpire. Look what he says here in our verse. In verse 11, he tells us here, those who are wise, he says, will show discretion in dealing with hurtful experiences or when some mistreatment happens. Now, the word discretion is defined as follows. The ability to respond well by behaving or speaking in a manner so as to avoid causing offense, or exposing people for what they did. 
That's what discretion describes. And he says, those who are wise will show discretion when dealing with hurtful experiences or mistreatment. And using discretion helps to do two things. He says, when you use discretion, verse 11, first of all, it will help you to be more slow to anger. In other words, you will remember how often the Bible tells us what? That God is slow to anger and how God is patient with us and remembering the nature of God and how much he's shown mercy towards us and love towards us that when our flesh is quick to just react and to just get angry and to just you know, kind of quickly respond in, in retaliation, discretion will help us to respond well by behaving or speaking in a manner to avoid causing offense even if we've been hurt or offended. It will be the thing that will help us to be slow to anger so that we don't expose people for what they did, but instead we'll remember the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. And it doesn't humiliate and disgrace, but instead it, it shows discretion to try and in a discretionary way be slow in the anger response and tempered and merciful. And he says discretion will also help us secondarily, he says, to experience the glory, the honor that is for God's glory, to look what he says, verse 11, to overlook a transgression. Imagine doing that, to actually just overlook a transgression. Could we not all openly acknowledge very clearly that numerous times God has done that for us? And notice he uses the term here, not sin, transgression. Remember, sin is to miss the mark. So you can try your hardest to, to hit the target 10 times in a row and one out of 10 times because you're an imperfect person, you're gonna fail, you're gonna miss the mark. So you can sin without even trying to sin because we're all imperfect people. Transgression is a strong term biblically, which means willful defiance. Transgression is that malicious, I know it's wrong, I don't care that it's wrong, I feel like doing it, I wanna be selfish. I want to be mean, or I just, transgression is just the kind of that conscious, deliberate, when somebody just crosses the line and just a brazen, they don't even care. They just do it in a moment of, of selfish gratification, just kind of in that real intense, form. and so he says, to overlook a sin, all right, maybe I can do that, God. <laughs> he says to overlook a transgression the most grievous of forms of offense. And he says to overlook a transgression is demonstrating that you have wisdom to exercise discretion. To overlook a transgression means being willing to ignore or disregard a major failure. It means being willing to overlook it, to let it, we might we use this term, to let it go without harshly, severely coming down upon it. To just, overlook it. Hey, man, they, man, that was wrong, but, but they blew it, and God's, God's been merciful to me, and so therefore, I'm going to overlook it in my response, and instead, I'm going to just disperse mercy and overlook the transgression. He says, that's the discretion of a man. It can make you slow to anger, and boy, he says, it's wonderful for God's glory when you can actually overlook a transgression. Verse 12, he says, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but in contrast, his favor is like the dew on the grass. So uh, it's wise to understand and to respect the authority held 
by those who have power to rule over us. Again, a king would be a political leader or you know, someone in a position of authority. And the Bible teaches us to respect authority in all capacities, whether it's familial, whether it's governmental, whether it's spiritual authority. And here he says, look, there's nothing really typically to be gained by being rebellious and disrespectful and poking the king in the eye and poking the dragon. He says, if that person has power and authority, which the wrath of a king was very severe in that day. I mean, we think that, you know, we're so oppressed in the government. So, I mean, try the Roman Empire, try the Persian Empire. I mean, it was off with your head. You could just look the wrong way and off with your head. I mean, the severity of the wrath of a king was super strong that they could come down in punishment. And he says, look, there's nothing to be gained with poking the, the lion in the eye there to anger or disrespect, you're just inviting severe suffering upon yourself. Much better, he says, in wisdom to do what you can to just seek to be in good relations with those who have authority, earn a favorable attitude, invite peaceful favor and blessing upon your life. Just, again, using wisdom to navigate that many times is just a wise way for your own benefit rather than you know, just making your life more difficult and complicated. Verse 13, he says, A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. So here, verse 13, he speaks of clearly, we might say, two things that can greatly harm a man from making progress and being able to succeed in going forward in their life. And those two things he mentions that can kind of impede a man's progress or ultimately can hold him back from succeeding in his life are twofold. Relationship with one of his children and the relationship at times with his spouse. He says one thing that can cause great harm to a man is to have a foolish son, or we might fairly say just as well, a foolish daughter, notice he says, can be the ruin it's a strong word, isn't it? The ruin of his father. He doesn't just say the heartbreak of a father. And, and if a child behaves foolishly, certainly that breaks the parent's heart, right? I mean, it just, it, it, it destroys their emotions. They feel so heartbroken and all the complication that goes with that. What did we do? Did we do something wrong? And that, that's one thing. But he says the foolish son, a child that becomes foolish, can not only drain and emotionally break the heart of a parent, but they can actually destroy a father, completely destroy them. And, and I think in, in many senses, I mean, mentally and emotionally, I've seen parents literally come to the brink of utter ruin, just mentally and emotionally and spiritually because of the foolishness of one of their children. And literally just doing things to such a foolish extent that that child is literally bringing the ruin mentally, emotionally, sometimes even marrily between the mother and father because of the way that they're behaving, as well as the fact that a foolish child as well, right? If they're making harmful, foolish, repeated decisions, they can bring the ruin of the father because that father, time after time, is throwing money after their mistakes, bailing them out of jail, trying to fix their problems, right? And, and you can literally bring financial ruin to a father's life just by a child behaving foolishly. And he says that is something that can really sadly hold back a man. It could be the ruin of a man having a foolish child 
And the second thing he says that can really impede the progress and success for a man can also become at times the contentions of a wife, which are a continual dripping. And the idea there is to be contentious, which means to instigate stress through constant verbal conflict all the time. So through verbal conflict, uh, verbal comments, always instigating stress in the husband's life through things like routine complaining, continuous suggestions, not just complaining, constant criticism, these kind of things that can cause continual contentions from a wife being a contentious woman, criticizing, suggesting this, you should be doing that, why aren't you doing this, and just continually doing that constantly, constantly. The Bible paints this picture that a contentious wife is like a continual dripping. Now, I hope you get the word picture there, right? If you've ever had a leaky faucet, if you've ever had a leak spring in your house, a continual dripping, that constant leak, that constant dripping, well, it does a couple of things. First of all, it's certainly damaging things, right? If you have a constant leak and a continual dripping, that water will continuously damage and damage and damage and damage until it's resolved. Not to mention that anyone in the room understands a continual dripping is that A word, annoying. It's annoying. And God's saying to the wives, be careful. Because this continuous, contentious spirit saying things, suggesting things, nagging verbally, criticizing, commenting on everything, always suggesting, pushing, he says, that can start to become like a continual dripping in your husband's life. And he says, not only is it going to become annoying, but listen, when you have a continual dripping, what is the one thing you can't wait to do? Shut it off. And sometimes I'll hear, I feel like, I just feel like he's just completely shut me off. I feel like he's just shut me off. Like he just shuts me. Well, Maybe it's time for evaluation. There could be, and, and sadly, sometimes, and I'm not saying it's a right thing, but I see men do that sometimes. They just get to the point where eventually that's what they do. They just, they just shut their wife out completely. And that's not good either. It's not healthy for the marriage or for a relationship, and it's not healthy because God at times can use our wives to speak into our lives, to say things that are helpful, to protect us, to offer us input and guidance. They're our closest comrade and our greatest accountability and counselor in our lives. But God just says, you got to be careful. You got to be cautious that you're using reservation and you don't want to fall into that place where you become that contentious voice, that continual verbal, uh, in a sense, you know, commenting all the time where you become like a continuous dripping because that can really bring great harm and impede your husband, certainly can damage marriages as well. Verse 14, he says, in contrast to that, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So here you go. This is the way to aspire towards this. He says, toward being a prudent life, wife that's like a gift from the Lord. So material possessions, the Bible says, that can enrich one's life, houses, wealth, those things can be inherited, passed on from a father. So material things that enrich someone's life as a gift, they can come from human fathers. But he says, to have your life enriched in a different way that is to have your life enriched 
by a prudent wife, he says, that gift, that inheritance, that only comes from the Lord. Remember, we saw in our study together last time where he told us there that, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. And again, this is kind of a complimentary verse upon that, to be able to receive a prudent life, wife. He says, if you've received a prudent wife, that is a wife that uses good judgment, she, she thinks ahead before she does things or says things, that's what prudence is. Prudence is thinking beyond the present moment and taking consideration, if I do this or I don't do this, how will that affect an hour from now, a week from now, a month from now? That's what prudence is. Prudence is acting with thinking forward in the process, not just being caught up in the instant moment and reacting. And he says, if you've got a prudent wife who she uses discernment and good judgment and she is a compliment and a blessing in your life, he says, you ought to be thanking the Lord because that's a gift from the Lord. It's a wonderful thing for God to give us a, a prudent wife in our life and to bring that favor and blessing into our life. And you know why that is a gift from the Lord? Because the reality is the only thing that can do that in anyone's life is the Lord. And so that's God's blessing. Lord, thank you so much for giving me the prudent wife that you have. Lord, what a gift. And again, to be able to see our wife as a true gift from the Lord and helps our appreciation of our spouses increase, helps us to realize that she is the princess and the blessing that she is uh, to be able to have her as that prudent wife helping you as a complimentary partner in your life. Verse 15, he comes back to this topic once again of laziness. He says, laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. So notice laziness can be a root cause of causing a person to sleep or rest more than is normal, we might say, or more than is necessary. Certainly we need to get some degree of sleep and rest, but he says laziness is that root cause of casting a person into undue sleepiness, making them rest way more than they should. That's a root cause of laziness at the root of that. And another root cause of, of laziness is an idle person will suffer hunger. So laziness will also cause a person to be idle. That is a condition of being inactive, being unproductive, again, not being engaged in doing something, not accomplishing things, sitting around a little bit too much. And he says, when you're sleeping too much and you're too idle, you're going to end up finding that you're suffering lack. That is, you don't have what you need because you didn't take responsibility to be productive and supply what was your responsibility to do. Verse 16, he who keeps the commandment keeps his own soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. So the idea here is the wisdom uh, in our life is what directs us to keep not only the commands just generally, maybe boundaries or rules people have given to us, but certainly the, the commands of God above all else. And wisdom will always direct us to keep God's commandments because that's what's the safest and healthiest pattern to live out our lives by. He says, if you live according to God's commandments, you're going to find that you're going to experience good because you're going to establish good boundaries for your life. And you're going to preserve your soul from problems and mistakes. In contrast to that, he says, if we get sloppy or we get lazy or, or we begin to get rebellious, even worse, he says, he who is careless of his ways will die. So again, strong language there. Again, just God warning us that it's crucial to not become a careless type of person. 
That is in the way we handle our affairs, how we operate in our lives. You know, God never encourages us to be someone who's not conscientious. He always encourages us to do the opposite, to care about what we do, to whatever we do for the glory of God, to be careful, to pay attention, to not be careless in our decisions or our actions or the work that we do, but instead to care. That's the idea. Care about what you do, everything. Because he says, if you become careless in your ways, it's not just wrong. He says, it's dangerous. You may end up really destroying something that's very important or worse, even destroying to some degree your own life. And the root issue may have been that you became careless in your ways, and that caused the problems that you encountered. Verse 17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, 